purpose to do this morning. And we just give you all the praise. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is from Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, the body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of our Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Man, it was great to have our kids back here. You, you, did, did you see them all? You see them all exit? They exited. They said, we're done with this service. It's over. We're out of here. No, they went back to their room to hear a Bible study. And uh, great to have our youth here this morning. We've got some of them here and a whole lot of them up north at a winter retreat or winter, winter camp. So pray for their safe return and that they would truly encounter God because uh, that's what we're here to do today, to encounter our Savior and our Lord. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 18 through 23. We read the whole section there because it's all about Jesus. And so Luke covered the first part of this, and so I'll cover the next part of this. This is our Colossians series, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And we've titled this weekend's message, Too Good to Be True. Too Good to Be True. I've got my life verse there on the top of your notes. It'll also be up on the screen behind me. This verse is uh, really very meaningful to me. This is me. This is what happened to me when I encountered Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I'd love to, to do a whole study just on this verse. It's a a powerful verse, but let me summarize it right here. It's on your notes. Knowing Christ is so infinitely valuable that you'll gladly give up everything to have him. You'll gladly give up everything to have him. In fact, the more you realize who Jesus is and what he's done for you, by the way, that is the gospel. It's who Jesus is, what he's done for you. The more you realize it, the more it dawns on you, the more it will seem too good to be true, even though it is. I mean, it will will absolutely captivate you and ravish your heart. 
and really kind of take over your life in so many different ways and fill you with joy and peace and love unlike you've ever experienced before. I think uh, Charles Spurgeon's quote here helps us with that, helps us to understand that. Uh, Let me read it here. It's on your notes, also up on the big screen. You will generally notice that when the believer gets near to God, tastes the unseen joys, and eats the bread that was made in heaven. Notice the contrast here. Once you're doing that, all the feast of earth and all its amusements and all its glories seem very flat, stale, and unprofitable. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I've, I've had some feasts that were really, really good. How about you? You guys have some feasts? Like every week? <laughs> I've had some feasts that, were, that, have, that are really good. And how about amusements? You ever been to Disneyland? That, that could be fun. There's a lot of great, great amusements, great movies. And, and it's glories. And then he describes them as, in light of who Christ is and what he's done, in light of that, they seem very flat, stale, and unprofitable. Let me ask you this question. Is that true about you? Do you have that kind of relationship with God? That that you could actually say what Charles Spurgeon is saying there? Yeah, these are all great. The world's filled with feasts and amusements and glories, but they don't even come close to what I have in Christ. Is that you? Do you desire to to experience that? I've had those experiences. I don't have them near enough. I want more of them. But I really believe that's, that's the definition of the Christian life. When you really begin to understand that, it's too good to be true. And there's nothing wrong with the feast and the amusements and the glories. I mean, I, I believe that um, they're a dim glimpse. They're all good. They're great. <laughs> I love them. But they're a dim glimpse and they're a gift from God and a pointer back to the greatest glory and beauty and satisfaction that you'll ever experience. Those are all good, but they're a dim glimpse of something much greater, and that's found in God. That's, that's me. That's the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found in his joy. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's, that's the Christian life. And let me just share with you a little bit of what God's been speaking to me since the beginning of the year as it relates to Desert Breeze and what I believe that God wants for us here in 2022. He wants us to come in with, a, with, a, with an expectancy, to come in expecting to encounter him, to know him, to, to grow in our relationship with him, to, for him to, to heal us and love on us and transform our lives. By the way, that's faith. There's a tendency, you know, we've been through a lot of crazy stuff over the last couple of years. And, and what happens is that you kind of just, you're just lucky you're surviving and it's business as usual and it becomes kind of a cavalier, casual kind of Christianity. And, and so we're not really exercising the faith that God has given us. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we don't see. The word hope is confident, joyful expectation that when we get together, corporately, when we get together in our small groups, when we, when we get together with God in our personal daily devotions, that we come with a level of faith, of expectancy, to encounter God, to hear from God, that he wants to speak to us. 
And as we interact with him, it, it transforms us. That, that Then you can begin to say that the feast of earth, its amusements and glories are... And glory seemed flat, stale, unprofitable in comparison to knowing him and experiencing him. You know, that's very biblical. That's very biblical, but I think that oftentimes we don't encounter him, we don't experience him like that, like Charles Spurgeon is defining here, is because we don't have that expectation. We don't have that deep desire within us, just if we had more desire, a desire to know him, to grow in our relationship with him. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. Hebrews 11.6, it says, whoever would come to God with, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Whoever would come to him must believe that he exists, and listen to me, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Are you seeking him? Are you seeking him more than you seek anything else? Do you have deep desire for him? Tells us in James 4, 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. You're only as close to God as you want to be. Did you know that? You're as close to God as you want to be right now. And if you'll draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. Tells us in Jeremiah 20, uh, 29, 13, 29, 13. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I'll guarantee you, you seek him with all of your heart, you're going to encounter him. And you can echo the words of Charles Spurgeon here. I mean, it, it, there's something about knowing God that's better than anything in life, experiencing him. Matthew 5, 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Okay, that's my intro. Okay. That's my intro. That's God's heart for us in 2022. That's what we've been praying for. That's what I've been praying for along with others that we would have that encounter, we would experience him week in and week out, we'd come in here with a level of expectancy. So let's unpack this text because I think this text, <laughs> it helps us and stirs up our heart for Christ. And so there's three questions I, I believe this uh, text answers for us. Who, who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? How does Jesus transform our lives? And I'm telling you, if you understand this, you're gonna say, that's too good to be true, and yet it is. It's very true, very true. So before we head into this understanding of Jesus, this is a foundation. You've got to know who Jesus is. That's the foundation of our faith. And so the gospel is who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so before you fly in a plane or go under anesthesia for surgery or commit yourself in marriage to someone for life, you want to know if they have the character or the credibility to back up their claims or their commitment to you. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. Now, this is what you also need to know, too, is that everyone is betting their life and eternity on something. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, or even if you're an atheist, you're betting your life and eternity on, on something or someone. Whatever that something is becomes the Lord of your life, whether you think of it that way or not. And if Jesus, if you don't live for Jesus, you will live for something else. I mean, it's pretty basic. You're either going to live for Jesus or you're going to live for something else. There's a lot of other something else's in our world, but there's only really two options. Live for Jesus, live for something else. Came across a story a number of years ago. There were five men in an airplane, the pilot, a lawyer, the smartest man in the world, a pastor, and a Boy Scout. Sounds like a crazy joke, doesn't it? Okay. No, I'm going to make a point with this. Hang in there. They were all... 
they were flying along when the plane started to go down. Noticing that there were only four parachutes, the pilot grabbed a parachute and jumped out. Now with only three left, the lawyer said, without me the world would be dull. So he grabs a parachute and jumps out. Then the smartest man in the world stood up and said, I can't imagine what the world would be without me. So he grabs a parachute and jumps out. The pastor turns to the Boy Scout and says, son, I've lived my life. I know where I'm going. So you go ahead and take the parachute. The Boy Scout replied, no, we can both go. The smartest man in the world took my backpack. There you go. Here's my point. I have a point here. Okay, I really do. Living for anything other than Christ is like jumping out of a plane with a backpack. Huh? Isn't that true? And I meet a lot of people who have jumped out of the plane of life. They're betting their life and eternity on a backpack. Living your life for anything other than Christ is like jumping out of a plane with a backpack. And I, and I can hear them. I hear and when I talk to people, as they're falling, and they're going to fall to their death and into eternity, I hear them saying to themselves, so far, so good. As they're going, and, and, and things may be going well in their life, but it's just a matter of time. It's a matter of time. And so only Jesus, listen to me, and this is what I'm going to, this is part of the point of understanding who Jesus is. You've got to know who Jesus is. And only, only Jesus has the credentials to rescue you, redeem you, reconcile you to the Father once and for all. Only Jesus has the credentials to, to fortify your faith, to satisfy your soul, to liberate your life. Only Jesus can do that. Let me prove that. Look at your first fill in the blank on your notes. He is the founder and leader of the church. So he's, he's kind of building a case. He started um, up further up in, in the part that we read here this morning, this weekend. But he's just kind of building a case about who Jesus is. Look at verse 18a. And he is the head of the body, the church. So when you think of the head of the body, the church, your head is the control center of your whole body. So here's what a, what a healthy church would be. This is what a healthy Christian would look like, is that Christ is center at the center. The head is the control center of your whole life, so he's at the center of your life. Everything we value, think, say, or do, individually and corporately, should be all about obeying Christ, loving Christ, exalting Christ, serving Christ, enjoying Christ more than anything or anyone else. We are to be Christ-centered in our lives individually and also this church. How do you know it's a healthy church? They're going to be Christ-centered. They're going to be a Christ-centered church. The church is going to be all about Christ, helping you to know Christ, grow in Christ, enjoy Christ, have a deep passion for Christ. I was, I was thinking about that, and I, was, I jotted this down on, on my notes here uh, yesterday, I was, I was kind of working through this as I was reflecting on it. Any church that does not have as its primary focus the deepening of our passions for Christ is an unhealthy or an imbalanced church, church, no matter how zealously it seeks conversions or how forcefully it promotes righteous behavior. You can do all of that and, and be a very legalistic church and not be about Christ. I know churches that are like that. 
See, it, it is to see that Christ, this is what you need more than anything. You need to see that Christ is so infinitely valuable that you would be willing to give up everything to have him. And those fires need to be stoked every weekend. That's what you need more than anything. And, that, and then as, that, as you begin to find your deepest affections and, and loyalties in Christ Jesus, I mean, that begins to take care of everything else in our lives, really. That he's the passion of our life. We want him more than anything. He, he is at the center of our lives. And if you love Jesus, you will love his body, his bride, the church. Now, we live in a day and time when everybody wants to play armchair quarterback and critique and criticize and slam the church. They're all over the place. And these are people that still claim to be Christians, and they just beat the living daylights out of the church. If you talk trash about my wife, we're not going to get along well, okay? I'm just telling you straight up. And so I can't help but think that, yeah, you might be a Christian, but then if you walk with Christ and you get to know Christ and you love Christ and you understand his love and passion for the church. By the way, when the Bible uses the word church, ecclesia, called out ones in the New Testament, it uses that word about 115 times. 92 of those times, it's talking about local church families like desert breeze. And so local church families, that expression of the church is really, really important to Jesus. So if you love him, you're going to love his, his church, his people, local expressions of his church. Now, there's no perfect church. You guys agree with that? Okay? No perfect churches. The church, even in the midst of the fact that it's a mess, I, I, I think that, that Christ is redeeming. That's why we need Jesus. That's why he needs to be at the center of our lives. And so, as you've heard said before, that if you're looking for the perfect church and you find that church, don't join it because you'll wreck it, okay? <laughs> and you will. Because you're like me, we're messed up, we need Jesus. I need Jesus, you need Jesus. That's what I'm here to tell you, okay? We're all on the same playing field before him. It's all about him. We need him. And, and so, as we love him, we're going to love his church. He's the head of the church. And Matthew 16, 13 through 19, Jesus came and asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they came up with a whole list of what people were saying about who Jesus was. Very similar to our days. There's a lot of crazy ideas about who Jesus is. And then he turned to his disciples and said, well, well, who do you say I am? And this is kind of one of the few times that Peter didn't stick his foot in his mouth and embarrass himself. But he says something very profound. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the savior, redeemer of the world. You've come to, to satisfy our needs and to reconcile us to the Father and, and, um, and take care of all of our issues with sin and suffering. And, and I, I just, I gave you kind of more of the uh, amplified version on that one, okay? Uh, he didn't actually say all of that, but that's what he was actually meaning by that. And so Jesus turns to him and says, uh, Peter, you didn't come up with that on your own implied you're not that smart, okay? You're not that smart, Peter. And none of us are that smart, but this is the work of God. And then he goes on and he says, upon this rock, upon this confession of faith in me, I will build my church, listen to me, and the gates of hell won't prevail. Is that good or what? So if you've committed your life to Christ, gates of hell won't prevail. It's getting crazy out there. This world politically you know, economically, 
you know, educationally, every area. It's getting crazy, but I'm telling you, the darker it gets, the brighter we should shine with the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what God has called us to do. Gates of hell won't prevail. What are you up against? What are you being challenged by? Gates of hell won't prevail. We're on the winning team. Put your faith in Christ. That's what we have in him. That's what Jesus said. He's the head of the church. It's all about him. And so oftentimes people say, well, how does Desert Breeze run, and how's the church to be run? Well, the church is to be led by Jesus Christ through a plurality of leaders known as elders and deacons. And so I got all the addresses there, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5. And believe me, our elders and deacons, Christ is at the center of this church. We seek his guidance. We look to him. We want to make much of him. We want people to know him and, and grow in their relationship with him. I'm thankful for our leadership here. Here's the next thing. Okay, that was just the first part. Okay, we got to pick up the pace here a little bit. So he's the founder and leader of the church. So we're looking at the credentials of Jesus. Who is Jesus and are we going to really build our life on him? He is our eternal savior. The next fill in the blank is our eternal savior conquering sin, death, and evil. Look at verse 18b. We're still in the verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The word beginning basically is saying that he's eternal. And we get that from Revelation 1.8 when Jesus is uh, referencing himself. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm eternal, says the Lord God, who is and was, who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So he's eternal, and that's important to keep that in mind. He's eternal because when he uses the word firstborn, he says the firstborn from the dead. JWs used this verse and the previous verse as a reference, as a proof text that Jesus was created. Now, Luke did a great job at explaining that last week, but all they gotta do is read the context here, and they'll know that Jesus is not a created being. He's not firstborn in the sense literally physically, but spiritually, and that's when the Bible is using that. It, could, it can at times refer to that firstborn, but in this case, it's not in the sense physically, but spiritually. First in importance with rights and privileges of a firstborn. So you cannot be the firstborn and be elevated to that position. That's all it's saying about who Jesus is. And... Uh, that's one of the many cults' ways of trying to deny the deity of Christ. They're false. It's, it's false teaching. And it's wrong, and they'll use Scripture to try to prove that. That's why you need to know Scripture and understand what these words mean. But you read it in the context that it's written. He's eternal. He can't be firstborn in that sense. And so he's not created, in other words. So ancient culture, firstborn sonship was about carrying on the family name and wealth. Family name resembled values and beliefs and culture and reputation. It's called the law of primogeniture. See it throughout scripture. And through Christ, we are all classified as firstborn. Did you know that? That through Christ, through our belief in him, uh, quite, a, quite a great position, and we've talked about that in the past. In our last series, we talked about that. But he goes on, he says, firstborn from the dead. So through his life, death, and resurrection, he conquered sin, death, and evil on our behalf. So that's what it's talking about. That's amazing. That's incredible. I mean, this should be on the news every night of the week of what Christ has done for us. Now, I know we're talking about who Christ is, but it does go into what he's done for us right here. And so the gospel is the good news of the true story that God came from heaven to earth in Christ Jesus, and through his life, 
death, and resurrection. He defeated sin, death, and evil, and is making all things new, starting with us, starting with our lives. And so he is the founder, leader of the church. He is our eternal savior, conquering sin, death, and evil. Here's the next one. He is more superior, sufficient, and satisfying than anything in this world. Look at verse 18c. That is, that is everything that is that in everything he might be preeminent. That, remember that word at the very, very beginning of this series? That's what this whole book is about, that he is preeminent. And the key verse for this whole series is uh, Colossians 2.10, in him you have been made complete. In him you have been made complete. All of our healing and health and hope and wholeness and holiness and happiness is found in Christ Jesus. I've been uh, in my prayerly devotional this week. It's been repeating John 6.35, which happens to be one of my favorite verses at the very end of it. And it goes like this. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall never go hungry. Whoever, uh, oh, it doesn't go like that. Okay, let me go back. Okay. I am the bread of life. Whoever Whoever comes to me shall not go hungry. Who, whoever believes in me shall not go thirsty. That's how it goes, okay. So, uh, but, but a lot of times people will say, well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really content, and I've come to Jesus. I came to Jesus years ago, and, you know, I committed my life to him. It's not like a once, one, and done kind of a thing. It's actually present, active, indicative. It means ongoing, that you come to him every day, that you know him, you experience him. Let me ask you this. Do you have that kind of relationship with him? Did you know that the Christian life is about having an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing him, experiencing him, talking with him, interacting with him? Is there this mutual giving and receiving of love and truth between you and him? Do you do that daily? Oh my goodness, there's nothing better than that. And nothing will satisfy you more than that. That's what satisfies your soul. Man, I, I, I pray, I pray that you would experience that because that's the essence of the Christian life is to know, that, to know who it is that walks through your day with you. You don't need to be worried. You don't need to be stressed out. You don't need to be anxious. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Interact with him. Get to know him. Love him. Let him love you. Oh, my goodness. It's too good to be true, but it really is true. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And, and so when you, when you truly grasp the gospel in all of its beauty, glory, and richness, it will cause you to be stopped in your tracks, fall on your knees, and surrender your life to God in wonder, love, and praise. Oh, God, I give you. I give you my life. I want to live my life for you. That, that's normal. That's a normal response to the gospel message. And, and he provides all of this, and this, he is all of this because he is God. That's the next one. He is God. Next fill in the blank. Look what it says in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, there are people that will argue about the fact that Jesus never said that he was actually God. And, and, and when they say that, I go, well, you evidently have not read the Bible, okay? <laughs> Nor have you read the gospel accounts because it's all over the gospel accounts. Jesus is regularly talking about himself being God. In fact, I gave you a couple of those places, John 10, 30 and John 14, 6 through 11. It's very clear, by the way, that's why he got hung on the cross. It's because he, was, he claimed to be God. And, and, and so uh, when you look at uh, Christianity compared to the major cults and religions of our world today, there's a number of major differences. So when people say, well, hey, all roads lead to God, they all basically say the same thing. It's evident that you haven't done much research on all the major religions and compared them to Christianity because they don't. There's a lot of contradiction. It, it's, it's against logic, actually, 
what you're saying. It goes contrary to logic. They, they can't all lead to God if they contradict each other. And one of the major contradictions is that they all deny the deity of Christ. Now, if you listen to Mormonism, you kind of think, oh, maybe they kind of, well, wait, 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 you better find out who they're talking about there because they're saying that Jesus is God, but then you can be a God too. Uh, that's messed up. That's a different kind of God than what we're talking about here. So Mormons, uh, I, I, think th I think it's demonic what they believe. I think JWs, Jehovah Witnesses, it's demonic. It's a demonic cult belief, leading people away from the true and living Jesus. And so they try to say, well, he was a created being. He's not really God. And every other major cult and religion denies the deity of Jesus Christ, and that's the foundation of our beliefs. How do we know there is a God? Because he's revealed himself to us. How did he do that? Multiple ways, but the primary way is that, guess what? He showed up here. It's historical, it's evidential, it's factual. He walked this earth. He is who he said he is. He came to do what he said he came to do, and that was to rescue us and redeem us. It's an amazing story. It's too good to be true, but it really is true. And he is God. In fact, I can also tell that people haven't read, and I, I, don't, I have not read much. They have a New World Translation. It's called uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, and it's, it's been doctored up. It's a, it's a mess. Don't, don't lean on that. Don't look to that. But... Uh, but I'm thinking, well, how do they deal with John chapter 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Revelations 1 are all talking about the deity of Christ. Do you want to know that whether or not Jesus is God? Just go to all those different chapters. It's very clear. It's very clear. So let me go back to what we started with. If you don't live for Jesus, you will live for something else. Now, what's crazy about that, we can all say that we're living for Jesus and actually be living for something else. We don't know that until there's something else is threatened, blocked, or lost, and then we have this crazy emotional response to it. And then it kind of exposes, oh, I thought I was living for Jesus, because if I was really living for Jesus, I wouldn't be stressing out like I am now. Oh. So if you don't live for Jesus, you will live for something else. And if, if you live for your career and you don't do well, it will punish you all of your life. You'll feel like a failure, and it will drive you to be a workaholic, and then you'll find yourself neglecting the more important things in your life. If you live for your children and they don't do well, you will be in absolute torment, feeling like a failure as a parent, driving you to be overly controlling of your children until they either resent you or have no self of their own. Even if your career or children do well, it will never, ever be enough because your heart and soul was made for something much bigger. Listen to what one dead theologian said, if there is a God who created you, then the deepest chambers of your soul simply cannot be filled up by anything less. Even the most successful careers and families cannot give you the love, security, and significance that only Christ Jesus can give you. Did you hear me? That's true, that's very true. So Jesus is the head of the church, has always existed, conquered sin, death, and evil, and is superior and sufficient and satisfying above anything in this world because he is God. Live for anything other than Jesus, it will be 
unfulfilling and unforgiving. That's why if you want to look at your negative thoughts and emotions, often our negative thoughts and emotions, inordinate thoughts and emotions are revealing to us that we have built our life on the temporal as opposed to the eternal. And we're living for that, and it's letting us down. Listen to me. If you live for Jesus, you guys know that. You need to have this reinforced every day, every week. You live for Jesus, when you get him, he will fulfill you. (laughs) And when you fail him, you will fail him. He will forgive you forever. That's the foundation. Now let's build on that foundation of who Jesus is by uh, what has Jesus done. We'll we'll move a little quicker here, and here's what we're gonna do with the next part of this, is that we're gonna do kind of a wide angle, a wide angle, look at the big, the big meta-narrative of our, the issues that, that are at hand, and then we're gonna kind of little by little start zooming in a little bit closer and closer more of this uh, close-up, narrow-angle lens to see down deep into our heart what went wrong within each and every one of us. And so what has Jesus done? Look at verse 20. He helps us with this. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let me give you the meta-narrative of the whole Bible. What is the whole Bible about? This is what the whole Bible is about. This is what all of history is about. This is what God is up to. You wanna know what God's up to? I'm gonna tell you right here. Meta narrative, big picture, here it is. Creation, first fill in the blank there with that list. Creation, Genesis one and two. Go back to Genesis one and two. Guess what? You were created as objects of God's love to have relationship with God, to have your heart satisfied in Him. But something went crazy We thought we were smarter than God. We thought he was holding out on us, and we rebelled against him. We believed the lie. And that's where we have Genesis 3, the fall, the fall of mankind. And this is what's so cool about the story. Before the foundation of the world, God, through Christ Jesus, already had a plan. And immediately you see God begin to to work his plan from From the fall, you got Genesis 4 all the way to Jude, redemption, his plan of redemption to restore us. So you got in the Old Testament, you've got through this lineage, through this people, through his chosen people, he chose them to bless them so that they might bless the world and from their lineage would come the Messiah. They looked ahead to the Messiah, we look back to the Messiah. The Old Testament predicted the coming of the Messiah. We proclaim that he has come, that's his first coming, and we see that throughout the whole New Testament. And then we have the end of the story, which is restoration. So we're living between his first coming and his second coming, the restoration, Revelation, the book of Revelation. And, um, And so, you know, we live in the last days. Wait, 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 people have been saying that for thousands of years. Yeah, because we live in the last days. And now we're really, really living in the last days. But the last days began with his first coming, they will end with his second coming. So it's totally appropriate for people to say, hey, we're living in the last days. Yeah, absolutely. In light of this meta-narrative, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Come back quickly, Lord Jesus. That's what we pray, Maranatha. But now let's zoom in. Let's zoom in just to the fall the terrible results of the fall, Genesis 3, and you can see this when you read 
Genesis chapter three, this, this domino effect of things that begin to happen, and it starts with spiritual alienation. So listen to me. You were meant to walk in the garden in the cool of the day to look into the face of your maker. Think about that. Look into the face of your maker and receive all the glory, all the accolades, all the love, all the acceptance and security and significance you'll ever need that your heart would be filled up. But because we rebelled against him, by the way, every problem we have on this planet Earth, all the sin and suffering is secondary to our rebellion against a holy, righteous God. And so immediately we go from spiritual alienation to psychological alienation inside of every human heart. There's a desperate need for glory. It's called self-centeredness. We become glory-hungry because if we turned away from our source of glory, we're going to have to try to figure it out on our own. Do you hear that? All of our problems are because there's an emptiness inside and it turns into self-centeredness. And therefore, all of our relationships, all of our jobs, everything that we do is in an effort to complete ourselves, creating major problems. So it goes from spiritual alienation to psychological alienation to social alienation. Now, let me put it this way. I've said it before. Is if I try to find intimacy with another person before achieving a sense of identity and security and significance on my own in my relationship with Christ, all of my relationships become an effort to complete myself. Does that make sense? So if I've got, if I've got spiritual alienation, I turned away from God, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna be messed up psychologically. I'm gonna be empty, I'm gonna be desperate, and it's gonna create problems. Did you know that all of our problems, socially, politically, economically, all of that goes back to psychological alienation and spiritual alienation? Of course, all of that leads to physical alienation, such as women having a hard time giving birth to babies. I don't think it's that big of a deal, but, but a lot of them will say, okay, it's a really terrible deal. That's part of the fall, sorry. And part of the fall is having to work your tail off to try to make ends meet. That's part of the fall. And all these crazy, you know, all the crazy stuff that happens through tornadoes and wildfires and all this, all that stuff is all part of the fall. And God subjected this universe and everything to this kind of really this suffering. He allowed it because to, is to bring our hearts back to him, to, to show us we are desperate for him. He all did it to redeem us. Now, here's what's crazy about this whole story of the gospel. I love it. Oh, my goodness. I love the gospel. And immediately, as you see this unraveling in the third chapter of Genesis, the fall, you see God begin to implement his redemption plan. And what we have in Genesis chapter, chapter 3, verse 15, it's called the proto-evangelium. What is that? That sounds weird. Proto, first, evangelion, gospel, good news. The first gospel, first good news. Now imagine this. You're up hiking Thunderbird Park, and you got a family that's hiking up above you, and they're moving a lot faster than you because you're old like me, and <laughs> you can't keep up with them, and they're having fun, and they're rejoicing, and there's, they got three or four kids, and then the mom and dad are there, and they're, they're having a good time as they go out there, and as they're all huddled together, and they're working up the mountain, all of a sudden, a rattlesnake jumps out in the middle of them, coils up, is getting ready to strike one of the kids. What does the father do? The father steps 
tries to step on the head of the snake, gets out there to protect his family, and as he does that, the snake strikes him on the heel, but he kills the snake, but the snake's venom goes through his body and takes him down. That's what we see in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, a beautiful picture, proclamation, prediction of the coming of the Messiah. Right at the tail end as you're working through the, the fall, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Who's, who's that? He's talking to the serpent. He's talking about Satan. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the gospel. So we're living in the reality of that now. It's absolutely amazing. So, okay, how does Jesus transform our life? So, okay, we're going to zoom in even a little bit tighter. We've got to get down into our heart to see how this gospel works in our lives. How does it work its way out? Our life before Christ, we see this in verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's, this is the spiritual condition of everyone before Christ. Romans 3.23, for, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't live for his glory. And then Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, spiritual alienation. Now here's what happens in our hearts. This is what happened to Adam and Eve. This is why we sin. This is the root cause of our rebellion against God. It always starts with doubt. And then it moves from doubt to pride to idolatry. That's your next three fill in the blanks. So let me walk you through this so you can kind of see the cause of why we would rebel against God. Remember when the serpent came to Eve and what did he first say to her? He began to challenge, did, did God really say? So he challenged what his commandments. Did God really say, you shall not eat of this tree? Kind of challenging the commandments of God. And then it moves from challenging his commandments to challenging his character. And she goes, yeah, he said that if we eat of this tree in the middle of the garden, she kind of misquotes God. And he's, but, he go, but she goes on and says, if we eat of this tree, we will die. And, he, and then he responds by saying, you're not going to die. God knows. God knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll be like him. So what's going on there? I can tell you what's going on. If Satan can't get you, if he can't get you to not believe in God, get you to believe that he doesn't exist, this is where he'll work on you. Okay, you believe in God? He'll get you to doubt the goodness of God. If he can't get you to doubt the existence of God, he will get you to doubt the goodness of God. He's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. This is where all sin begins. And people defect from the faith for two different reasons. And one reason is that they defect because they are deceived by the pleasures of life. They actually think they're gonna be happier by pursuing the pleasures of life as opposed to the pleasures of God. And then they're disillusioned by the pain and problems of life, wondering, God, where are you in this? But let me just say, he's with you. He loves you. He's taking care of you. He can work all things for your good. He, he will never leave you or forsake you. It might look dark and difficult, and it create all kinds of, you know, you know, as you're thinking about this, going, I don't know where he's at. Listen, you can trust him. You can trust him in this. The enemy will come after you and try to get you to doubt his goodness, even in the midst of the storm. Hang in there. You're gonna see his work. You'll look back on it and you'll be able to see his hand working through all of that eventually. 
just a matter of time. Here's what happens oftentimes to our young, our kids when they graduate high school and they go off to college. 90% of our kids, our Christian kids, defect from the faith, not because of defensible arguments, but because of dogmatic assertions. Did you notice that Satan doesn't bring defensible argument? It's a dogmatic assertion creating an atmosphere of sneering and intimidation. Did God really say, well, that's stupid. You believe the Bible? That book has been discredited years ago, and, and they make all these dogmatic assertions with very little defensible arguments, creating an atmosphere of intimidation. That's what the enemy does. That's what the enemy does in our world today. But when you know when you know who Jesus is and what he's done, you know that it's historical, evidential, factual. Oh my goodness, it's rock solid for your life. You stand sure and you don't care. You can't be bullied by the world because you know who you are in Christ. You've looked into the face of your maker and received all the acceptance, security, significance you'll ever need. You can square off with him and just say, man, I'm sorry you don't see this, but man, I've never been more satisfied. And you can point to him and make much of him. And that's what he does. So doubt leads to pride. Just makes sense. If I begin to doubt his goodness, I can figure this out on my own. By the way, I've turned against him. So that spiritual alienation leads to a psychological alienation, which is self-centeredness. There's two forms of self-centeredness. There's superiority and inferiority attitude. So they both operate with this sense of neediness, this glory hunger, because you're not looking to God to get this, so you're going to have to find something in this world to satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. And so it goes from doubt, pride, to obviously idolatry. You're going to serve either Christ or you're going to serve something or someone else. You'll either serve big G God or little G God, counterfeit God, pseudo-savior God. Everybody is betting their life and eternity on something or someone. Everyone. Every one of us. You and I were created by God, for God, to receive glory from God, to give glory to God. And God's glory, his weight, his importance, his significance is seen best in our lives when we are most contented and satisfied and complete in him. People look at our lives and go, whoa, what is that? I, got, I have Jesus. I have Christ. You can point to him. The more we are satisfied in him, the more sin loses its appeal and suffering loses its effect on us. See, you're less overtaken by sin or temptation and overwhelmed by trials and difficulties when you understand and you find your deepest satisfaction. And that's the most important thing in your life to be satisfied in him. He's not holding out on you. Listen, he's, he always has your best interests at heart. He, always, he laid down his life for you. Oh, my goodness. He's not holding out on you. He gave his life for you. So look at this. What is the opposite of doubt? It's trust. What's the opposite of pride? Humility. It's a blessed self-forgetfulness. You already have your treasure. You're not self-centered. You want everybody in the world to experience what you're experiencing. And then what's the opposite of idolatry? It's worship, worshiping God. You're captivated by his beauty. Okay, our life after Christ, our life after Christ. Justification. Look at verse 22a. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. This is absolutely beautiful. And we've got, first of all, justification. He sets us free from the penalty of sin. Look at verse 22b. I know I'm moving fast. Hang in there. Buckle your seatbelts. Got your helmets on? Okay, here we go. 
Here we go, verse 22b, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Is that so cool or what? That is amazing. You're not accepted, you're not loved, you're not blessed, you don't go to heaven, you don't have intimacy with God because of your poor performance and record, but because of Christ's performance and record. Your performance and record was nailed on the cross with Jesus, and he gave us his performance and record. That's what it's saying, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 1 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Part of this is more than just the forgiveness of sins. It talks about a, a adoption. <laughs> this is crazy. It doesn't just forgive our sins. He adopts us into his family. Adoption is one of the greatest privileges of the gospel. Here's what adoption is. Traitors, you and I, are not just fully forgiven of our treason, our high treason, against a holy, just God, but we are also brought into the Father's home to feast at his table and become his dearly loved children. I mean, do you hear that? We go from being enemies of God to his dearly loved children. That's too good to be true. No, 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 it's true, it really is true. It's all through Jesus Christ. It's out of this world. It's absolutely out of this world. Oh my goodness, that is amazing. There, there's times I'm just kind of lost in wonder, love, and praise as I reflect deeply about the gospel and what I have in him. And there's other times I'm not doing so well, okay? Sometimes I'm just not thinking enough about it, and I get kind of beat up and pushed around by the world and the things of the world and the crazy thoughts that come into my brain. But man, when I think deeply about what I have in him, Justification, then we got sanctification, set free from the power of sin. Look at verse 23a. If indeed you continued in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So here's how it works out. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 makes it very clear. What, this is what sanctification is. He says, work out your salvation. Notice he doesn't say work for it. You already have salvation in Christ Jesus. But work it out with fear and trembling for his God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So you've got to take this adoption, this idea that you're a child of God and begin to work it into the specific areas of your life. So what difference would that make as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a coworker? as an employer, as an employee. It's gonna make all the difference in the world. You gotta work that out into the specific areas of, of your life. Now here's what you need to understand. Salvation is not a prayer you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on from. See, salvation, when you commit your life to Christ, that's not the, the finish line, that's the starting blocks of an ongoing, growing, intimate relationship with God. So salvation is not a prayer you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on from. Salvation is a disposition of repentance and faith in Christ that you begin in a moment and maintain for the rest of your life. So here's, this is real critical, this is important for you to understand, okay? Our sanctification is not the validation for our justification. I don't look at you and go, wow, he's a really good person. He must be a Christian. Well, you can be a good person and not be a Christian. Does that make sense? So that's not your validation. Just because you're a good person, you're a virtuous person, whatever, then, oh, he must be a Christian. No, we don't obey him, and therefore he loves and blesses us. Don't flip that. That's called religion. But our justification is the basis or validation for our sanctification. If we're not doing so well, becoming more and more like Christ, we need to spend more time with Christ and get to know who we are in Christ. 
and we're falling short of that. We're not really understanding that and beginning to apply it to the areas of our life and live that out. It takes a lifetime to do that. See, he loves and blesses us in Christ, therefore we obey him. Now this is really critical. This is where we wrap it up, but you need to understand this very last part because a lot of people don't understand this. I hear pastors teaching uh, this kind of wrongly and not really understanding it, trying to motivate people inappropriately. There's a difference between common virtue, common morality, and true virtue or morality. When you see someone being virtuous, loving and kind, or moral, living by the Ten Commandments, they could be motivated either by common virtue or true virtue. Keep in mind those two ideas, common virtue, true virtue. Let me define common virtue for you. Common virtue is extrinsic motivation, is motivated by either pride or fear. So it's extrinsic, it's kind of the gun to the head. Pressure's on, you better behave well. Okay, that's common virtue. It it goes like this, you're better than this. You can live better than this. I've heard pastors actually say that. You're better than this. How dare you? It's like, ah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I don't think that's good motivation. Uh, I'm not disdaining it. And they are probably better than whatever they're doing. But you're using pride to motivate them. Or you don't want to be like all those other people. We're better than them. Kind of an elitist mindset. That's pride motivation. Or fear. What will people think? You know people are watching you. You're the only Bible, you know, some people will ever read. So come on, get with it. That's fear motivation. You don't do that because you're the only Bible that people will ever read. You, you want to do that by, by true, it's true virtue. We'll talk about that in a minute. Or God will get you. Now, this is a morality or virtue because it benefits you. You're virtuous or moral because it benefits you. This is, this is a self-centered, self-centered motivation that is a house of cards, and it's just a matter of time before you will be tempted, and it won't benefit you to be moral, and, and you'll give in. This is how most people are moral or virtuous, and I'm not disdaining it. I'm glad people are moral and virtuous. It makes the world a better place, but they're, they're typically motivated either by fear or pride. The cameras are on them. They better perform well. That's extrinsic motivation. I had a guy a number of years ago in the fire department that his wife ran off with another man. And he was devastated, and he should have been. He came running to Jesus, gave his life to Christ, came to church, read his Bible, prayed, sitting on the front row. I mean, he cried, please, Lord, bring my wife back. He memorized scripture. He's part of small groups. He did all of this. And then over time, he realized that his wife was never going to come back. And he kind of maintained it for a season. And then all of a sudden, some sweet little girl came along, and he was off and running, never to return back to church or to God or to anything. What was that about? It's called, it's called common virtue. It no longer served him. God was a means to an end. It was fear and pride. It was fear that maybe my wife will come back, and if I could just get her back, oh, and then she wasn't coming back, and then some little sweet girl came along, and he's off chasing her. See, here's what's crazy is I could sit down and counsel a a guy that is uh, struggling in being nice to his wife, and what happens is that he's not nice to his wife because he's self-centered and and because of fear and pride in his own life, and you don't take fear and pride and self-centeredness and now make him good. That's a house of cards. He'll only be good as long as he knows it. Hey, my wife might leave me, so I'm going to be good. It's got to be much deeper than that. It's got to be 
Much better than that. Common virtue does not root out the fundamental cause of evil in our heart. That is the self-centeredness. You have restrained the heart, but you haven't changed it. You're using self-centeredness to motivate good behavior. I mean, I've actually heard pastors. I don't think they know what they're doing. But I've heard pastors motivate people to give to their church out of fear and pride. And I've actually heard them teach messages. If you listen to messages out there, there's a ton of messages out there based on fear and pride. I'm not disdaining it. Yeah, yeah, you're going to stand before God and give account. Yeah, you could get arrested if you do that. I'm concerned that with that kind of behavior. But man, you've got to have something more than just a gun to your head to, to change you. It's got to be something deep in your heart, and that's true virtue. True virtue is intrinsic motivation. It's when you are moral or virtuous, not because it benefits you or makes you feel better, but because you are smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. That's why you do what you do. You're not good for your sake, but for God and others' sake. Did you know what integrity is, the definition of integrity? Integrity is who you are when no one's watching. Why would you be good or virtuous or moral when no one's watching? Because you live for an audience of one. You live for God. Your heart has been so captivated. I don't care if cameras are on me or not. I don't care if anybody sees this or not. I'm honoring him. I love him. My heart is filled up with him, and it's just overflowing. I can't help but do this because I'm living in the reality of looking into the face of my maker regularly through his word and through prayer and through fellowship and filling my heart up with the only glory that satisfies That's it. That's it. The gospel is not a morally restrained heart motivated by fear and or pride, but a supernaturally transformed heart motivated by Christ's love for us and our love for him. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and in his joy He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's me. That's you. Knowing Christ is so infinitely valuable that you'll gladly give up everything to have him. And it seems too good to be true. I'm telling you, it is very true. It is very true. And we must proclaim this to the world. We've got to proclaim this to the world. We're going to talk about that next week. Look at verse 23b, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So next weekend, no greater adventure. We're going to talk about Paul's ministry and how it impacts our ministry and how we can help others to to see the beauty and the glory of our Savior. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders or leaders. If you're new, I'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you'd love to commit your life to Christ this morning, oh my goodness, I'd love to love to kind of walk you through that process. I'd love for us to pray together. If you have any questions about this message, I'd love to try to answer those questions for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. Take a moment just, so what is God speaking to you? He's here. He's here in a powerful way this morning. What is God speaking to you? Have you given your life to him? Just take a few moments. This would be something good every day. God, what do you want to say to me? How do you want to lead me? I want my life to be centered on you. Teach me how to really enjoy you in my life. So Father God, may our hearts be forever ravished by the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he has done that it ruins us for anything else.
May the greatest priority, passion, and pursuit of our lives be to know Christ, become like Christ, and contagiously tell others about Christ. We pray these things in his glorious and beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys.